0: One of his more creative books entitled The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis tells a fictional story of a busload of people who travel to heaven on their way to take up residence in hell. The travelers in this story appear thin and almost ghost-like in the solid atmosphere of heaven, and most of them immediately retreat to the safety and security of the bus. One of the travelers in Lewis's story is plagued by a talkative red lizard that sits on his shoulder and speaks constantly into his ear. The lizard represents the power of sexual sin and lust. In the story, this man ventures out into the plains of heaven. He encounters an angel who's been sent by God to get rid of the lizard. Lewis describes their meeting, which is really a parable about God's power to break the bondage of sin in our lives And to transform that sin into something that would be to the praise of his glory. And so the angel approaches this man and asks, Would you like me to make the lizard quiet? Of course I would, said the man. Then I will kill it, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, look out, you're burning me. Keep away, said the man, retreating. Well, don't you want him killed, asked the angel. You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel. Shall I kill it? Oh, look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it, said the angel? No, honestly, I don't think there's the slightest need for that. I'm sure I'll be able to keep it in order now. Some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. Get back, you're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did that. And then suddenly the lizard began chattering loudly. Be careful, it said. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he'll do it. And then you'll be without me forever and ever. I'll be good. I admit sometimes I've gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. Now do I have your permission, said the angel. You're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Go on, can't you? Get it over with, the man bellowed. But ended whimpering. God help me. God help me. Next moment, the man gave a scream of agony such as I never heard. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed, and then flung it broken-backed on the turf. The same moment, something seemed to be happening to the lizard. First, I thought the operation had failed. So far from dying, the creature was still struggling and even growing bigger as it struggled. And as it grew, it changed. Suddenly, I stared back, rubbing my eyes. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I have ever seen, silvery white, but with mane and tail of gold. The man, now free from his torment, climbed upon the stallion that had been his sin and rode into the glowing sunrise towards the Savior. Well, Lewis's parable about this hell-bound man who struggled with the red lizard of, of lust was written many decades ago, but I think this story is just as relevant today as the day Lewis first wrote it down, perhaps even more so. It's a parable that teaches us about the deceitful nature of sin and God's power to overcome sin and to transform it. It's a parable that portrays our sin nature and the enemy of our soul who whispers lies into our ear and persuades us that we could never live happily and be satisfied without the sin that we've come to embrace and to love so much. When it comes to this issue of sexual immorality, the death grip it holds over so many in our culture today, the power of lust is contained in the demonic lies that we Christians believe and embrace about our own sexuality and the lies that we believe about God's word and the trustworthiness of God's character. That red lizard of lust and sin is still sitting on the shoulders of millions of people in our world, both inside the church and outside the church, spewing a continual stream of deceit. As we look into the Word of God this morning and continue on in our study of First Corinthians, we're going to discover the truth about sexual sin. We're going to allow the Word of God to deconstruct some of the cultural lies that we have been led to believe and to embrace. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm going to begin reading this morning in verse 9. I remind you, this is the inspired, the inerrant word of God. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you and you have from God? You are not, a, not your own. You've been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The word of the Lord. On that passage of Scripture that we just read together, the Apostle Paul confronts a number of deadly lies about sexuality and sin that the Corinthian church had come to believe. In the time we have together this morning and next week, we are going to focus our attention on four of these lies that are very much alive and well in our culture today, just as they were alive in the city of ancient Corinth. First of these lies that Paul deals with in verses 9 to 11 is the lie that God won't judge my sin. And I want to read those opening verses a second time because they are crucial in unveiling the deception and breaking the bondage of sin in our lives and in our churches You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Over the course of chapters 5 and chapter 6 of this epistle, the Apostle Paul has been admonishing the Corinthian church for their failure to properly deal with sin in the camp. Chapter 5, we learn that they were tolerating uh, scandalous immorality. They were not willing to exercise discipline on their members. In chapter 6, we saw last Sunday that instead of working through their disputes and their conflicts in a Christ-honoring way, they were instead dragging one another into the public courthouse, and in the process, they were destroying their testimony for Christ. Dirty laundry from the Corinthian church was being aired out in a public place where it didn't belong, and the Christians were rapidly losing their credibility with non-believers in the community. And so Paul writes the scathing, sarcastic rebuke of the church in a series of rhetorical questions. In verse 9, we come to one of those questions in Paul's interrogation where he asks the church if they are aware that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes on after that to list a number of sins that have no place in the church or in the lives of God's children. The implication, of course, is that all these sins were evident within the Corinthian church, that these sins were being openly tolerated and even celebrated by the church. And so it would seem that some of the Corinthians had come to believe the deadly lie that we can embrace Jesus Christ and His salvation, while at the same time embracing immorality and making peace with our sin. It's what we've described in earlier sermons in this series as antinomianism. A lawless and heretical form of Christianity that does not take sin seriously and that doesn't think God takes it seriously either. This church had embraced a cheapened view of God's grace. They had fallen for the lie that God doesn't care what happens in our private lives or in our bedrooms when no one else is watching They had convinced themselves that since Jesus died on the cross to forgive sins, we can claim that forgiveness and then go on to do whatever we please in the full assurance that God will not condemn us on the day of judgment or cast us into an eternal hell. It is a persistent but false idea in the church that unrepentant sinners can go to heaven with their sins in tow. And Paul is now writing these words to sober them and to save them from a dangerous and deadly form of deception and false teaching. Well, it's absolutely true. The Apostle Paul was a great and unwavering champion of the doctrines of God's saving grace and forgiveness that he teaches throughout his inspired writings that guilty men and women can be forgiven of their sins, washed clean in the blood of Christ. Paul was also aware that some false Christians would take the wonderful gift of God's grace and would use it as a pretext for immorality. That's why in Romans 6, immediately after expounding the wonders of God's free gift of salvation in Christ, Paul goes on to write this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. For do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him, therefore, in, in baptism by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The Apostle Paul believed and taught that God's grace is a free gift that cannot be earned through human effort and merit. But Paul also believed that God's grace doesn't merely save the lost sinner, God's grace transforms the sinner. For in 2 Corinthians 5 we read, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new is come. And so in all of his inspired teaching and writing, we see that Paul steers a straight course between two damnable errors. On the one side is the heresy of legalism that says we can save ourselves by keeping the law in our own strength. On the other side is the heresy of antinomianism that says we can live sinful, immoral lives and still go to heaven because God has saved us by grace. Precisely the same attitude that Paul confronted in 1 Corinthians 3 when he told these Christians he could not address them as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Like so many Christians today in the 21st century, some members of this church had embraced a false gospel that led them into lawlessness and sin. The idea we can claim God's forgiveness through Christ, we can get our free ticket to heaven, and then we can go back to the pig pen of depravity and live like the rest of the world that is marching towards hell. As a man of great spiritual discernment, Paul understood the Corinthians had corrupted grace and he writes these verses in order to blow their false teaching out of the water and to set them back on the right path before it was too late, before they found themselves eternally separated from God. Corinthians thought that they could embrace Jesus without turning from their sin, but Paul tells them in verse 9, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So don't be deceived, 1st century Corinthians. Don't be deceived, 21st century Canadians. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Because according to the word of God, the kingdom of God is an inheritance given to the righteous. It is an inheritance for those men and women who Paul describes in verse 11 who have been washed clean in the blood of Christ, who have been justified by faith in Christ alone, who have been sanctified and set apart for the glory of God. This is not a kingdom, Paul says, for worldly wise people who claim to know the Lord Jesus to have an unwavering assurance of faith while they persist in their open and unrepentant rebellion against God and His Word. Such people, Paul says, are in grave danger of self-deception and hell. They are the same people described by Jesus Himself in Matthew 7 who will one day come to Him and will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and cast out demons in Your name and do many mighty works in Your name and to whom Jesus will reply, Depart from Me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. It's a deadly lie. It is a damnable lie, brothers and sisters. It says that God won't execute judgments against sin or that God is unconcerned about what happens in our personal lives and in the privacy of our bedrooms. God is deeply concerned with these things. And if the red lizard has been whispering this lie into your ear and persuading you that the God of heaven does not care too much about sin, let's allow the teaching of this inspired part of the word to wake us up and to sober us to reality. We must stop playing games with sin in the North American church and especially when it comes to matters of sexual ethics where we have grown so lax and so loose and so deeply influenced by the ungodly culture around us. Let no one deceive you with empty words, Paul says in Ephesians 5, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness but now you are children of light. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Verse 9 of our text, Paul takes aim against the arrogant libertines in the Corinthian church who saw no conflict between Christianity and a lifestyle of unrepentant sin. But in verse 11, he switches the emphasis from a stern word of warning to a gentle word of encouragement. Although it's beyond question that's Some of the Corinthians had fallen into serious theological and moral error. It is also true, there were many sincere believers in this church who struggled and who fought against remaining sin in their lives, just as you and I struggle and fight against remaining sin in our lives. Paul is not saying in these verses that a genuine Christian must be a sinless Christian. Paul is not saying in these verses that it's impossible for a genuine believer to commit the specific sins and offenses that he has listed in this passage. As we all know, and perhaps from our own experience, genuine Christians sometimes get drunk. Genuine Christians sometimes covet and steal. Genuine Christians sometimes commit adultery and fornicate and view pornography. Truth be told, every Christian here at Rosedale, every Christian in every church in our city and across our country has in one way or another committed some of the sins on this list and many other sins that Paul hasn't bothered to mention by name. The truth is that none of the sins on this list are unforgivable. If you've committed any of these sins in the past, if you are struggling with these sins in the present, there is good news that you need to hear this morning. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross for these very sins. That his blood is more than sufficient to cover the worst of our sin. To remove our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And to remember it no more. And this good news becomes even better news. When we realize that Christ didn't just forgive us of the sins we committed before we became Christians, but that His blood keeps on cleansing us from our sin. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Understand, Christians, the mark of a genuine believer is not someone who's reached a state of sinless perfection. The mark of a genuine believer is someone who recognizes the remnants of sin that remain in the heart. Someone who mourns over that sin. Someone who does everything possible through the power of the Spirit to put that sin to death and to fight against it for the glory of God. There is a world of difference between a false believer who decides to live comfortably with the red lizard on the shoulder and a genuine Christian who walks in continual repentance before God, striving after holiness, seeking to honor Christ with every thought and every action and every motive. The difference between these two types of people is so profound and wide, it will ultimately be the difference between heaven and hell. To the one group of arrogant, self-deceived people, Paul has a word of warning. To the other group that is struggling but repentant and growing, Paul has a word of encouragement. And if you're here this morning and you still struggle with sin like I still struggle with sin, my encouragement to you is to stay in the battle. Keep on fighting with the power that God provides. I mentioned to the guys in our Bible study last week, we should be able as Christians to look at our lives and to say, I know that I'm not the man or the woman that I ought to be. Thank God I'm not the man or the woman that I used to be. And if you can look at your life today and see evidence of the Spirit's sanctifying work, a slow but steady growth in holiness and godliness, the production of spiritual fruit, you can be confident that the Spirit lives in you and that He will finish that good work He started on the day when you bowed your knee and cried out to God and said, have mercy on me, a sinner. Never forget, Christian, you've been washed clean by the blood of Christ. It is a spiritual reality symbolized in your baptism. Never forget, Christian, you are justified by God's grace in the moment you believe. God declared you to be innocent in His courtroom. If you're a Christian believer here today, Christ took your sin upon Himself and He exchanged that burden of sin for His perfect, spotless righteousness. Don't forget, Christian, you were sanctified, you were set apart by the Spirit to be a trophy of God's grace. Believe that he is actively at work in you to make you more like Christ, who is your elder brother. And in those moments of failure when you feel like giving up, don't forget the words to that wonderful song we sometimes sing here at Rosedale. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look at Him and pardon me. The God that we love, the God that we serve, brothers and sisters, is a God of perfect justice and righteousness. He is not a God who will overlook or ignore sin. Every sin that has ever been committed by a human being on planet earth has either been judged at Calvary through the death of Christ or else it will be judged eternally in the lake of fire. Either Christ will pay the penalty for your sin or you will pay the penalty for your sin. But either way, the penalty will be paid and the justice of God will be satisfied. And so don't deceive yourself this morning with the lie that God will not judge the secret sins of your private life because He most assuredly will. He will either judge them at the cross of Christ and transform you into a new creation or else He will judge them eternally in hell. So don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. The God of the Bible is a just and a holy God who judges sin, even as He is a merciful and gracious God who has provided us a Savior. The first lie that Paul confronts here in our text is the lie that God is not that concerned with sexual sin. But as we move on now to verse 12, we encounter a second lie that is closely related to the first one. A lie about what it means to have freedom in Christ have a look, another look at that verse. Verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Throughout the remainder of 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to quote and critique some popular and catchy slogans that were being thrown around in the Corinthian church. And the first one of these slogans is given here in verse 12 of our text. The slogan is this, all things are lawful for me. If you're reading this morning from a modern translation of the Bible like the ESV, you'll notice the editors put quotation marks around the slogan so it's clear that these words are coming from the Corinthians and not from Paul. Now at first glance, the Corinthian slogan, all things are lawful for me, doesn't seem all that wide of the mark. For isn't it true Christ died on the cross in order to set us free. Read through your New Testament. Read Paul's letters. You will notice very quickly how much Paul loves this theme of Christian liberty. How often Paul speaks about this theme. For example, Romans 6 and 7, Paul speaks eloquently and forcefully about our freedom from the law as a means of salvation. In Galatians 5, he sounds the same note of the Christian's tremendous liberty in Christ. That's not to mention Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8. And so it shouldn't come as a surprise that the Corinthian church, a church that was planted by Paul, would hold high this banner of Christian liberty and freedom, a banner that Paul himself loved to wave. There's an important nugget of gospel truth in this slogan, but there is also the possibility of great deception. Deception. Because if we take that catchphrase about our liberty and if we isolate that phrase from the rest of Paul's theology and teaching about Christian love and service, it becomes a very dangerous idea that will lead us down the wrong path and away from the truth of God's word. We've already mentioned this morning there was a libertine wing in the Corinthian church that felt it was perfectly fine to receive God's grace with one hand while committing immorality with the other. And it's almost certain some of these heretics were justifying their behavior under the guise of Christian liberty. Perhaps some of them even had the audacity to claim that they were putting Paul's principles about grace into action and simply walking in the freedom of the cross. A bit like Christians today who go around repeating the popular catchphrase, judge not to anyone who would dare to question their behavior without realizing that Jesus himself placed qualifications on that command. This is what was happening with these slogans in Corinth. As a result, sexual sin in the church was being treated as a legitimate and acceptable form of Christian liberty. Now what's interesting, when you look at verse 12, is that Paul doesn't dismiss the slogan altogether and throw the baby out with the bathwater. Rather, Paul qualifies the slogan biblically so that it will no longer be abused and used as an easy excuse for sin. First qualification that Paul places on this slogan is found in the first half of verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. And what Paul is saying there is simply this. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. You may, for example, have the freedom to dance, but it would probably be better to exercise that liberty at a wedding and not at a funeral. Sometimes our liberty in Christ is situation-specific. You may have the liberty and the freedom to drink a beer, but drinking one in front of a struggling alcoholic may not be the best way to love your neighbor as yourself. You may have the freedom to watch television or go to the movies, but entertainment that glorifies the immoral values of this world may not be the best way to feed your soul or to train yourself in righteousness. Over the past few years, a number of people have asked my opinion about whether or not a Christian should gamble money at the casino or play the lottery. My response to that question is to ask another question. Is it possible to gamble your money without coveting money? my case, I'd find that impossibly difficult. So I don't plan to start. It's the same reason why I don't go to strip clubs, why I try to avoid movies with nudity, because it's impossible for me to participate in those activities without lusting after a woman who's not my wife. As Christian men and women, we have all kinds of freedom and liberty, but just because we are free to do something, or to watch something, or to go somewhere... Doesn't mean it will be helpful for your spiritual growth. Doesn't mean that it will be loving to other people around you. Doesn't mean that it will be glorifying to Christ. Liberty in Christ doesn't mean you have to say yes to everything. It also means you have the freedom to say no. Great reformer Martin Luther wrote a short treatise in 1520 that he called the freedom of a Christian. In the opening page of that book, he places two seemingly contradictory sentences back to back in an effort to instruct the church on this very principle we're considering. On the first line, Luther writes this, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. On the very next line, Luther writes, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant to all, subject to all. And what Luther is getting at in that book is that Christian liberty must be governed by Christian love. Just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. As Christians, our first, our ultimate duty is not to exercise unrestrained liberty, but rather to exercise unrestrained love towards one another. And in some situations, that will mean voluntarily laying aside some of our liberties for the greater good. This is Paul's point in the first half of verse 12. It's a very practical principle. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Paul places one qualification on liberty in the first half of the verse. In the second half of that same verse, he gives us a second qualification that is even more pointed. All things are lawful to me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Now at first glance, the second qualification seems almost self-contradicting. Because Paul is telling us here in this verse that some expressions of our personal liberty will actually turn us into slaves. He's telling us here that some of the things that we human beings think will set us free will eventually bring us back under bondage. I wonder how many people in our world today have turned to drugs and alcohol to find a quick and easy escape from life's problem, only to find out too late That they were the slaves. That alcohol was the master. I wonder how many people have tried to escape a difficult marriage by going into the bed of another man or another woman only to find out in the end their choice to commit adultery brought far more pain and complication than it did pleasure. I wonder how many Christians have pursued divorce on non-biblical grounds thinking it would solve a problem only to realize later on that no marriage is perfect. The grass is not always greener on the other side. wonder how many teenagers have given their virginity away thinking they have found the person of their dreams only to discover a few days later that they had been used for a moment's pleasure and then dumped for someone else. Strange as it may sound to our modern ears, counterintuitive as it may be, there are times when rules and boundaries free us. Whereas the unrestrained exercise of liberty enslaves us think about sports for example how enjoyable would it be to watch a game of hockey without a rule book or a referee to enforce the rules and to watch the lines or consider our society at large try to imagine a country where every citizen was free to do whatever they pleased without any laws or rules to govern their conduct and without any police force or prison uh, to restrain the offender If we human beings are to be truly free and happy, there must be rules to govern behavior. Otherwise, our lives would descend into chaos. We would find ourselves enslaved to the very things we thought would set us free. This is the counterintuitive part of Paul's teaching in verse 12, that the way to be truly free and happy in this world is to voluntarily give up some of your freedoms. And so if I want to be free and happy in my marriage with Leslie... I need to give up the freedom to watch pornography. I need to give up the freedom to have sex with any other woman. If you're a single person here today and you want to enjoy the freedom of life as God intended, you would do well to live according to the boundaries that God has revealed in His Word to remain celibate. As I've said before, I know some single people who would give anything to get married. I also know some married people would give every anything to be single. All of us think that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. In reality, the weeds of sin are everywhere. And so, brothers and sisters, whether we are married, whether we're single, we need to learn to be content. We need to learn to be content in the situation God has sovereignly placed us, to look to Him for satisfaction rather than looking to anything else. Because once we put sexual fulfillment in the place of God, once we begin to trust in sex to make us free and happy, we are worshiping an idol. And if we are worshiping an idol, we have become slaves to whatever that idol may be. You know, many people, perhaps most people today, think the Bible is an outdated book that puts boundaries around our sexuality in order to control us or to make us into miserable, unhappy people. The truth of the matter is that those boundaries have been put in place by a loving God in order to free us, to make us happy and holy. After all, whose idea was sex? Was it Hugh Hefner's idea? It was God's idea. It was God's invention. And because God created sex and because God created us, God knows far better than we do what will lead to human freedom and flourishing. Those of you who own a car know how important it is to follow the owner's manual and not just to put in a little bit of this and a little bit of that when the fluids get low. If your car runs on unleaded gas and you decide to fill it up with diesel one day because it's going to save you a few dollars at the tank, you're going to get a big surprise when you pull away from the station. And how very odd it is that we meticulously follow the manual for a piece of metal that is heading towards the scrapyard but yet we stubbornly refuse the rules and boundaries God has given for bodies and for souls that are destined to live forever. Why is it that we are so arrogant and so condescending towards God and His Word and God's teaching on sexuality? It is a book that was lovingly written by the God who created us, the God who invented sex, the God who knows what is best. The truth is, friends, when it comes to our sex lives, many Christians and non-Christians think that we know better than God. And as a result, we are paying a very steep price, both individually and in our families and also in our society at large. Those of you who are a bit older than me this morning will remember the free love movement of the 1960s. All the utopian ideas that went along with that movement, but that movement towards unrestrained sex was eventually tempered by the massive flood of sexually transmitted disease that came in its wake. As it turned out, sex wasn't free. Lust wasn't free at all. It came with a hefty price tag, and we're still paying for it, and we will continue to pay for it. Same thing can be said of the HIV epidemic in the 1980s, which came about in large measure through our blatant disregard for the moral precepts of God's Word. Men who are desperately seeking to be sexually liberated in a way that God's word forbade found themselves subject to a new and a deadly form of slavery. I don't say that to be ugly or uncompassionate in any way. That's the truth of the matter. We go back a bit further to the mid-20th century. The sudden development of the pill and many other methods of birth control offered a new form of sexual and financial liberty for Westerners and an inexpensive way to combat sexually transmitted disease. But in spite of the obvious benefits of birth control, its sudden arrival, its almost unquestioned acceptance by the Protestant church had the devastating effect of severing the theological and biological linkage between sexual intercourse and the conception of children. Over the past 50 or 60 years, birth control has changed our world in ways that is difficult to comprehend. It's like the internet. It's changed our world for the good and for the, and for the bad. Fundamentally, birth control changed the way that we as a society think about the value of children and family. Birth control paved the way for an almost unchallenged acceptance of premarital sex, or what the Bible refers to as fornication. For all of its benefits, birth control has permitted us as a society to view sex as little more than a form of casual entertainment, when God's design for intercourse was to propagate the earth with his image bearers. I'm not totally against the use of birth control. I don't think that we should or even could do away with it at this point. But in retrospect, many 20th century evangelicals embraced the pill and the condom with almost no theological reflection and with very little foresight on how these innovations would transform sexual attitudes in the Western world, and in some way, how birth control would lead us to the place we are today, where almost anything goes. Because after all, sex is just a bit of harmless entertainment and nothing more. We're living in a brave new world, brothers and sisters. We're living in an age of tremendous, massive cultural shifting and restlessness. When you stop and think about it, our world today isn't really that different from the world of Paul and the Corinthians, at least not when it comes to our attitudes towards sexual sin. And through it all, God has been faithful to bring his church through many challenging days. And we can be confident as Christians that God will continue to be faithful to his church in our generation, no matter what challenges might lie ahead. We don't have time this morning to deal with the other two two lies about sex in this passage. We're going to continue next week. But as we close our time in the word this morning, I want to return for a moment to that parable that I shared at the very beginning of the sermon remember in C.S. Lewis's story, the red lizard was eventually put to death and through the power of God this hell-bound traveler was set free and his ugly past was transformed into something beautiful and majestic. By using this this image of divine intervention and miraculous transformation, Lewis was pointing us towards a glorious truth from God's Word. It's the truth that God is willing to liberate us from the chains of our sin and that God is sovereign and wise and powerful enough to take all of the sins and the failures of our past and to use them for His glory. You know, I was so encouraged a few weeks ago at our outdoor service to hear our brother Jerry share his story so openly and honestly about how God delivered him from a life of drugs. And more than that, how God is now using Jerry uh, to impact the lives of children here in Welland who might be heading down that same road. That's the power of God to change a life. That's the power of God to restore the years the locust has eaten. Our God, brothers and sisters, is a God who can take all of the ugliness, He can take all of the shame of our past, and He can transform it into something that will bring great glory to our Lord Jesus. You know, when the Apostle Paul was writing this letter almost 2,000 years ago, he was thinking about the names and the faces of Christian men and women in the church who had once been knee-deep in the pit of sin and depravity. Drunkards, prostitutes, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves. Paul knew who they were. Paul knew what they had done. But praise be to God, drunkards and prostitutes and adulterers and thieves and homosexuals, they were no longer. For the grace of God had stepped into their lives and had washed them clean by the blood of Christ. What a wonderful word of grace for the Corinthians back in the first century. What an encouraging word for the church in the 21st century. And such were some of you but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Praise be to God.